Hello and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast for societies about all things scholarly publishing. I'm Anna Ayler. In this episode, we'll listen in on the talk given at a recent virtual research seminar for society publishers, researchers, faculty, librarians, and other research stakeholders. We'll hear from David Bowman, professor at the University of Tasmania, and Bayami Williamson, research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, about their involvement in tackling the bushfire crisis in Australia. Professor Bowman began his talk by describing the devastating and intense bushfires that Australia experienced in recent years, the causes of which were debated in the media. These debates that erupted around the crisis ultimately led to deep political and environmental divides within the country. Here's Professor Bowman. Scientists like myself were scrambling to try to work out a basic statistic, and that is the area burnt, and then a basic step of contextualizing that statistic. You know, historically, how unusual was that area burnt? So in the media, there was a really bizarre thing for a scientist to be dealing with. There were all of these, I guess you could call them hypotheses or claims being put out there. And they were spanning the political uh, and environmental divides that uh, that influence and affect Australia's you know, uh, politics. Uh, there was everything from people believing that or not believing in climate change, wanting to believe that it was all arsonists, criminals, overgrown landscapes, lack of cultural uh, Aboriginal burning, the effect of forestry. Now, the problem is that when you have all of those ideas out there, you end up, this is a very recurring theme, you end up having to re, uh, reinvent or, or discover the transdisciplinary field of pyrogeography. What pyrogeography does is that it understands fire as a very complicated uh, uh, process which spans the biological and physical sciences, uh, the uh, atmospheric sciences, geographical sciences, but also culture and society, politics, right through to, to you know, psychology, psychiatry, um, the arts, everything. So suddenly a coherent understanding of a fire event demands individuals or groups of individuals to be thinking about fire across so many different perspectives, so many different disciplinary lenses that pyrogeography, I believe, is an appropriate um, arena, an appropriate approach where you can actually think about this complexity and think through the likely consequences, causes, and ability to adapt and, and to mitigate such horrendous uh, fire effects. But this is the, the thing that transdisciplinary crisis research, and that's fundamentally what pyrogeography has come, carries with it a whole lot of philosophical, intellectual, emotional traps and I'm going to offer and transgressions for, for academics, that there can be academic transgression. I'm going to reflect on those and provide some tips that what I've learned from you know, my lived experience of being in a transdisciplinary crisis discipline. 
Now, I think the one thing, and it sort of is so obvious, but it needs to be said, and to paraphrase uh, George Orwell, all ideas are interesting, but some ideas are more interesting and more valuable than others. You know, for goodness sake, we're in a crisis. You know, that really interesting honours project is actually a waste of effort. If you could take these young people and direct their effort, their PhD students, small grants, to actually bring to bear and leaning into this crisis, that then we can actually start generating you know, the body of knowledge we need to, to do the adaptation work that's ahead of us. And I would argue that journals need to really think about shaping the fields of inquiry to motivate and capture otherwise wasted or underutilized research effort. You know, show some editorial uh, direction, uh, some inspiration, some incentivization to really try to get people to think about particularly applied and place-based research. Rather than seeing that as second rate, second order, it needs to be understood as being of absolute critical importance. And the one thing that really I feel very, very strongly about is the disparagement of case studies. That is such a wrong-headed and misguided view. Case studies are the baselines. We are now in a rapidly changing environment we need to document as we go because, you know, the 2016 Tasmanian wilderness fires are very old news. The 2019 smoke event that affected Hobart, that's old news. But when it was happening, it was the biggest news in town. So we've got to keep up and record. That's the point of publishing, to provide a record, to provide a baseline so we can actually understand the trajectories of how you know, the, the fire crisis is playing out and how our attempts to mitigate the fire crisis are working out. One of the things which we talk about diversity, we really have got to take diversity on board. We need diversity of approaches, of methods, of research teams, the individual nature, uh, incredibly important institutional composition. There is not one right team. There's not one right person. There's not one right approach. There's not one right method. We need a lot of diversity. We need publication types that have diversity. We need data papers. We need reviews. We need models. We need arguments. We need opinion. We need commentary. And we need diversity of journals. And we need in that to respect different disciplinary norms and philosophies. One thing is sure as hell is that a narrow, play-safe, reductionist, hypothetico-deductive methods are completely inadequate to deal with uh, crisis, you know, transdisciplinary crisis disciplines. You know, that the problems that we're facing are huge, they're complex, they're, they're messy. But we need, likewise, to clearly label, badge, identify, and articulate the type of output, the academic output, uh, the intellectual output needs to be clearly identified to avoid misapprehensions. Don't use a data paper as a, a Trojan horse to push a particular uh, narrow argument. Make an argument and, and use the available data or identify there are no data to support that argument. And one thing that I feel very strongly about is that we do not we should not 
privilege consensus. The IPCC approach of consensus is actually, I think, counterproductive. Rather, through diversity, we should be looking for coherence. Because if you've got a lot of people doing a lot of different things and they're all coming to the same conclusion, through triangulation, you can start to say, I think that we're getting a very clear truth signal. And I think that one of the things we've got to be very clear about is ourselves and our own, um, our own motivations, our own biases, and that we really need to be strong enough to differentiate fact from opinion. David Bowman emphasized the need for diverse perspectives in research, research methods, the teams that do research, and the approaches they use. Because challenges like the bushfire crisis in Australia just can't be solved any other way. It's also so important for each of us to be aware of our biases, maybe especially researchers, to be sure we're grounding on research and facts and not unconscious bias or opinion. Up next, we will hear from Bayami. Bayami set the scene describing his family and indigenous identity and what inspired him to study in his field of research. He wrote an article that was picked up by the media explaining how Indigenous people experienced the bushfire crisis much differently than non-Indigenous Australians, which asked the question, what happens when the homelands that people have ancestral ties to are destroyed? I guess it's through the lens of my family. Uh, my mum was actually part of, uh, le- led the development of the first uh, Indigenous-specific curatorial and our cultural heritage team in an Australian museum. Um, or gallery. So really looking at sort of the representation of Indigenous peoples in those spaces and what and what that means. Uh, so they were both really, um, it's fair to say they were both pretty, you know, pretty much on the front lines of um, political, civil, economic um, rights and representations of Indigenous peoples. Um, I think it's, um, but thinking about my parents in this generation uh, in another way is that they were both born in 1951 So it wasn't until uh, 1967 when they were both 16 years old when Australia um, successfully passed the referendum to alter the constitution and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as basically being citizens in their own country. So whilst we are making progress to support Aboriginal peoples in tertiary education and into academic careers, um, what we're finding is that it's much more difficult, however, to support and normalise Indigenous knowledges and methods in the academy. So whilst we're seeing people welcomed in in greater numbers, we're still seeing a hesitation from different academic institutions um, to to allow them to bring their ways of being, knowing and doing um, to to their research. So um, yeah, now I'll come to some of the research that I'm a part of and we'll kind of begin to see sort of how how a different approach to the research is is really changing the way that, um, well, we feel changing the way that um, that we're doing it and it's also challenging the institutions to be open to that transformation as well. So one of the key research areas is the work that I've been doing on the Black Summer bushfires. Um, so when the fires hit, I guess, and we're seeing this, um, you know, catastrophe unfold, um, we all, when I say we, I mean Aboriginal people, um, kind of intuitively knew, knew that because of where they were hitting, that they were having a significant impact on Aboriginal peoples and communities. Um, We knew this because we all know 
where our large communities are. We all know um, where the old missions and townships and whatnot are. Um, we didn't know because of the latest census count. We didn't know because of any, you know, administrative data collected by any state or federal governments. We knew because it's kind of like within the cultural, um, yeah, the cultural intellect of the community to know where we are and how old we are and what we're doing. So at the height of the Black Summer bushfires, I was invited to contribute an article um, to the conversation, um, and that that contribution was uh, was asked of me to contribute something in the cultural burning space to look at, you know, how Aboriginal knowledges of ecosystem management and um, cultural burning in particular can, you know, might be a solution to this. But not that that wasn't important, um, but we kind of knew that those stories were being covered in different bits here and there. And we also knew there was a pipeline of research coming in looking at cultural burning in uh, southern parts of Australia. And so whilst it is really important, um, we kind of respectfully advise the editors of that, of the, of that media organisation that, um, that perhaps wasn't the most important story to be told right now. And there were glaring omissions in the, in the reporting um, of the Black Summer bushfires. And the glaring omission for us was quantifying the impacts on Aboriginal peoples and also looking at how Aboriginal, the experiences of Aboriginal peoples were, were, were different um, as a result of the fires. And so that led to uh, publication of this, um, of this piece, uh, Strength from Perpetual Grief, How Aboriginal People Experience the Bushfire Crisis. So what happens when those countries, those homelands um, are destroyed? including sort of certain plants and animal species that people have ancestral ties to what happens when catastrophic fire comes through and what makes an Indigenous person Indigenous is removed from the landscape. So this is a very profound question and it was something that before we asked it, apparently people weren't asking it. Really looking at um, the missing areas of the research, of conducting research, of commentating in the media, of advocating in different spaces and uh, trying to make sense really of what was happening while it was happening. Um, this bit of work led to a working paper that was um, published through my centre, um, really, uh, as I said, uh, quantifying the number of Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that were impacted by the fires looking at their, the rights regimes, the land rights regimes that exist, the native title uh, rights that exist over the lands that were being impacted by the fires. So we're looking at, um, you know, advocating for government meeting their own statutory responsibilities to engage with Aboriginal people um, who have cultural heritage rights, who have native title rights, and whose rights were obviously being heavily impacted by these fires. Um, we also looked at how... Um, yeah, the impacts of the fires impact, uh, could potentially impact um, future rights of Aboriginal people. So what we were highlighting was that Aboriginal people had been ignored in these post-bushfire commissions and inquiries and advocated heavily for their, not just inclusion, but their embedding, you know, embedding their perspectives and experiences within the fabric of these commissions and inquiries. And we got some way with that, so, but we, you know, didn't want to let an opportunity go by and we used the opportunity strategically to really outline the case of how Aboriginal people had been impacted by the fires. So this led to a, just a, an explosion of interest in Australian media 
um, international media as well. You know, for the first time, people were really, despite we did the research, obviously it was, wasn't until we were able to provide public commentary in a format such as the Royal Commission that it really got into people's faces. These kind of things, the, the, the joining up of the, of the research, of looking for what's, uh, what's not being covered, um, advocating, um, you know, it goes across a number of the research areas, well, all of the research areas that I'm, uh, that I'm involved in. And um, this is the way that I kind of think about being, being Indigenous in, in, the, in the academy today. And that is, it's, it's a kind of a, it comes together within, the ne- within a nexus of the personal, the political and the intellectual. So we're all looking for stuff that's really intellectually stimulating, that we enjoy doing, um, filling important gaps, you know, finding out where the gaps are, filling those ga- gaps and being very explicit in our advocacy in those spaces as well, that it's about, you know, we're all, we're all in it. Bayemi's work and others highlighting the perspectives of Indigenous peoples in research have gotten global media attention around the bushfire crisis especially, but it's a model for thinking about climate disasters and their impact that is relevant all over the world. I'm personally inspired by both David and Bayemi and what their work represents as a model for other research responses to crises. That is it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Anna Ayler, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley in Research and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening.